0: This podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those, and should not be interpreted as reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like, more and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you should always do your own homework and let us know when we're ready.
1: Welcome back to the Curb Well, hi. How are you doing? Good. Yep. I'm. I'm actually sitting next to, to you guys. This is really weird and awkward. <laughs> somehow, I don't feel awkward at all. I
2: don't care for this. It's somehow weirder than when we're
1: apart. <laughs> I realize that uh, both of my co-hosts uh, do not like to be be in the same room as me when we are recording.
0: We're just all antisocial. It's the problem.
1: <laughs> That's okay. Well, this is Dr. Matthew Wado, and uh, did you guys want to introduce yourselves?
0: Sure, this is Paul Williams, and I'm still Stuart Brigham.
1: Paul, did, can you tell the audience what we do on this show?
2: I would be so happy to, Matt. We are a podcast that uses expert interviews to bring clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge to our, our guests and the nope, holes. Not our guests, to our listeners. Our guests are already could be the guests too. Yeah, we should probably cut all this out, or yeah. we can just keep rolling. It's fine. <laughs> It's guests and listeners and their brain holes. Everybody, everybody, practice changing knowledge for all.
1: <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, on this on this episode, we spoke with Dr. Sheila Crow about food allergies and food intolerance. We spent a lot of time talking about celiac and non celiac gluten sensitivity, which we find out may be actually actually be a fructan sensitivity. Spoiler alert. Mm. Avoid and, uh, those some artichokes. We also, we talked about the basic workup you should do and some of the voodoo that you should avoid. Dr. Sheila E. Crow, MD, FRCPC, FACP, FACG, AGAF. I, and I think unlike, uh, Dr. Scott Weingart, all those titles are actual, actual <laughs> things. Uh, she has received her medical degree from McMaster University in Canada, where she also completed her residency and fellowship in internal medicine and gastroenterology, as well as a research fellowship since 2000. 2000- 2011. Dr. Crow has been a professor of medicine and director of research at the University of California, San Diego. Previously, Dr. Crow has held professional appointments at McMaster University, University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston, and the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Dr. Crow is currently the president of the American Gastroenterol. And I can't say that word. <laughs> Dr. Crow. Dr. Crow is currently the president of the AGA and will transition to AGA past president at Digestive Diseases Week in 2018. She is the third woman president of the AGA since it formed in 1897. She is a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians of Canada, the American College of Physicians, and the American College of Gastroenterology, as well as the AGA. She is an expert on food allergy, food intolerance, celiac, as well as H. pylori, we are thrilled to have her as a guest to talk about food allergy, food intolerance, and celiac disease. And at that, let's break for lunch. With us today, Dr. Sheila Crow. Hi, Dr. Crow. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, well, it's great to be here. Thank you. This is this is unusual, guys. We're all in the same room and yeah. uh, with a guest in the same room. It's uh, it's kind of nice. I do not care for <laughs> Paul. Paul's a bit of an introvert. And, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> He calls himself an introvert, but everyone loves him, and he seems to like hang out with people. So I don't know. No,
2: I'm, I'm more asocial. Yeah, this is more that was more directed at Stewart than you. Please don't yeah. do it personally. <laughs> I understood it.
1: <laughs> well, let me ask you our first question. Can you give the audience a one liner to describe yourself? I'm a gastroenterologist. I trained a long
3: time ago, and I've, but my area of interest is something that is all around food, food intolerances, food allergy food aversions. And in this era now, more and more of our patients are concerned about what they're eating, what they're not eating, the nutrition. Part of the problem is most um, medical people don't get much training in food and nutrition. And so patients go looking online for information. And so doctors... I think are interested a little bit now because their patients are always asking these questions. So I hope I can shed some right. th- things on the difference
1: between allergies and intolerances. That's exactly why I, I looked at the program. I was like, we got to talk. We got <laughs> to talk to Sheila about this. Uh, I, it feels weird calling you Sheila because we just met, but I'm I'm sticking with it. Okay, no
3: problem.
2: Yeah, <laughs> sounded
1: supernatural. Yeah, yeah. yes. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. I appreciate Makes you your feel efforts. older when you have to be doctor. <laughs> okay. Well, how about outside of uh, outside of your work as a gastroenterologist? Uh, any hobbies or interests? Things you do for wellness? Um, I like to travel. I like to eat.
3: I like to bake. My husband's the chef in the family. Like pets, children, um, children are very old now, a relative. One of them's turning 30 in August. And so can't really call them kids anymore.
0: That's still a child. They're yeah. still younger than us, yeah. so we're okay with that.
1: All right. I usually like to the, the co-host to ask you some questions as well. So I'll ask, usually
2: this question throws people into a panic. So it's any kind of book recommendation, any book that you've read recently that you enjoyed or you think other people might enjoy as well.
3: Hmm. This would be... I wrote a book along with a colleague of mine um his she went to medical school and her husband was sitting at a 25th medical school reunion and he said have you ever thought of writing a book on celiac disease and I said no nope. and then I said oh ian that's kind of rude. Why did you ask me that question? And he says, I write a lot of for dummy books. So then he and I co-wrote um, Celiac Disease for Dummies. <laughs> His specialty as an endocrinologist was in type 1 diabetes, and there's a overlay yeah, right. on genetic basis for young children that have diabetes also have celia- celiac disease.
1: Okay. Okay. Just so I wrote it, uh, and great had, and it had
3: to be humorous, and I'm not exactly that the most humorous <laughs> person, so I had to get out of that sort
1: of very stiff mode of writing. <laughs> I got you. Well, uh, Stewart Stewart just purchased the book, so. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, if you have insomnia, you can read that.
1: <laughs> Perfect. So I
0: actually wanted to put a little more specificity on that question. Is there any book that you think? a general internist or a general physician, general practice physician should read to help them understand nutrition, just kind of the basics of nutrition and food.
3: I'm not the right person to tell you that. My nutrition training is long time ago, mostly in gastroenterology, Mm -hmm. internal medicine, medicine in general. Physicians aren't taught very well. Mm -hmm. So I can't tell you a, a very good textbook. I trained at McMaster University, and everything is outdated if you look at books. By the time they actually come to the market, the data are five, maybe longer years. Mm -hmm. So textbooks, I go to primary things, reviews, and that's what I would recommend to people. Excellent.
1: Before we move into the main topic, I just wanted to ask in in your career, what's some great advice you got whether it was while you were a learner or later on in your career as a teacher that you can share with the audience. Become an expert. Mm-hmm. If
3: you have a sp- specialty, learn and know as much as you can. I tell our fellows become some of an expert even within gastroenterology because it's going to give you some career and some things of specialty that maybe get more patients that referred to you instead of being a generalist within your specialty make yourself useful. Right. I've visited a lot this year as the president of the AGA association. I was up at Northwestern University and just last year or last week, I should say, and last week also at university of Colorado and mm-hmm. Denver. And I tell a lot of the Uh, fellows, they should specialize in an area. Mm -hmm. And right now, if you look into uh, endoscopy levels, many of those positions are taken and they're not a good area to look at. The one thing is dealing with things like IBS, Mm -hmm. functional GI disease, and that revolves around food and nutrition as Mm -hmm. well. I tell them Really become an expert within your division, and especially if you want to go to another place, because there are very few people who are specialized in that area of gastroenterology.
1: Mm -hmm. And I've seen we talked we've talked about this with other guests on the show, and I think even um, as we're biased because none of us have done a subspecialty, but I think like within your subspecialty within your specialty, you can you can sort of make yourself an expert on a topic or you can, if even within your practice, you can be the person that sees the men's health issues or something Mm -hmm. like that. And I think that's a good way to uh, save yourself a fellowship if that's not something you feel is for you, but everybody can probably find an interest that is going to be like beneficial to their career.
3: Yeah, I, I agree
1: with that. Yeah. It's really important. Well, the, your specialty is what we, what we want to talk about today. And, uh, <laughs> Almost segway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Paul. It's I, pretty natural. I appreciate you, uh, having the like play by play on the interview here. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, let us, let's give a a case and then we can sort of talk through that. We can use that as, as the way to lead into everything. And this, uh, so our, our correspondent, uh, Sarah Roberts has written us some cases here. A 34 year old woman presents to primary care physician. Um, let's say this is just a typical patient you're seeing saying that they're having some GI distress, loose stools, bloating, cramping. Um, it's been going on for several months now. There's been a little bit of weight loss, but, um, less than 5% of body weight, patient is not pregnant, no history of antibiotics recently, hasn't traveled anywhere. Sister said she her sister works as a nutritionist is like, "I think you have celiac disease, you should stop gluten." And she wants to know from you like should she be tested for celiac and gluten sensitivity? So, can you maybe um start off by just sort of defining like food allergies, food intolerance and like what what the audience needs to know? to start getting into these cases. Absolutely.
3: So the difference between a food allergy and a food intolerance in the United States, the division of allergy from intolerance is all about it's an immune basis. Mm -hmm. Celiac disease is based on T cells. Food allergy, like peanut allergy, is mast cells and basal cells. Mm -hmm. And they are related to an antibody that causes the asthma, rashes, hives, and GI symptoms as well. So those would be, and celiac disease is a different type of, but it's still immune um, driven. Mm-hmm. Whereas things like lactose intolerance is not an allergy.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: There are many different mechanisms in the group of intolerances. There's physiological, pharmacological, psychological. I have a psychological aversion to mushrooms. <laughs> so when I was three years old, apparently I used to eat mushrooms, pick them off the cutting board. My parents remembered that. Then they read the book of Babar the Elephant. Mm-hmm. How many of you know that book? Okay. So a little known factor is Babar, the cute guy on the television series in the movie, is... Um, he becomes the king of the jungle. And the old jungle king um, died from eating a poisonous mushroom. It, on the inside of the original book of Babruf, um, you can see this little sketch, black and white, and he's got his feet up and, and, and it's <laughs> like steam coming off of him.
1: From eating a mushroom.
3: <laughs> From eating a mushroom. So since that day, I don't like the texture, the smell, or anything. And it's mor- morphed into truffle oil, which becomes bad for finding <laughs> things. So, but it's purely super tent- tentorial. So.
0: It's okay mushrooms are gross I hate them too.
3: Oh okay yeah, yeah. people either really love them or they don't like them so yeah.
1: And and you said intolerance so lactose intolerance is that's an enzyme deficiency Exactly yes and What are what are some other examples of intolerance that maybe the audience might or maybe specific examples
3: Fructose intolerance is another mm-hmm. non immunological thing the whole FODMAP Problem: mm-hmm. the low FODMAP mm-hmm. diet that people go on now for irritable bowel syndrome. I should know; I see so many patients yeah. with these mm-hmm. problems. But the fructans, um, lactose, all of those things—the the acronym of FODMAP—and yeah. yeah. you have to tell the patient it's not the FODMAP diet that makes them worse. They should be on the low FODMAP diet, yeah. unless they want to really trigger their symptoms even worse.
1: We, we had talked about that, uh, way, way back on the show, uh, with, with a previous guest. So probably some of our newer audience members never heard us talk about that. But that is a, um, my father actually had, uh, a bad gastroenteritis and developed like post, well, he developed what seemed to be irritable bowel syndrome after a gastroenteritis mm-hmm. and he found the FODMAP diet and, sort of he he ate low fodmap foods almost exclusively and then he actually he was very methodical so he was able to figure out which foods he could tolerate and he sort of his body recovered in and after that so is that is that typical of patients that do that
3: yes most of our patients who are sensitive to the fodmap foods are typically not the post infectious type because okay. it, it's 15% of Americans have IBS and other functional GI disorders, but a small set of them will have that post-infectious or enteritis uh, IBS. And some of them have to go on treatments because we don't have medication t- to a very good extent. And certainly in the post-infectious uh, IBS, you probably wouldn't want want to put them on a medication at that time, try to do non-things. Um, Lots of our patients are not thrilled to go on chronic medication if mm-hmm. they can avoid it. I think especially um, in California and a lot of parts of the U.S., people want to change their diet in order to feel better rather right. than going on antibiotics or medications of other types.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Just, and while we're defining our terms, so we have the food allergies, which are IgE-mediated, I- you have not the intolerance inti- and the aversions, and then sensitivity, is that another, just in terms of, is that an umbrella term, or how does that fit in everything else? So, sensitivity... Hold uh, on, Stuart's pointing and making face. I was,
0: I was going to say that the allergy is not necessarily IgE-mediated. Me- you can have IgA and IgG-mediated as well, correct?
3: I'll come to that. Okay. okay. It's... When I talk to the voodoo testing that's around, um, we'll get back to that. Okay. <laughs> so, or, or heading toward voodoo. How's that? I like so, it. Um,
0: we are in New Orleans,
3: <laughs> and it's all about how much of our patients fork out to get these tests and see lots of people who will give them advice. Some of it's not very good advice and people spend tons of money out of their pocket for these tests Mm -hmm. and treatments. So, so getting back to the sensitivity is another term. So across the Atlantic, Intolerance is what we typically refer to it in the, in the U.S. Okay. But some people will talk about sensitivity. sensitivity. Hypersensitivity suggests that it's an allergic right. reaction. But sensitivity is synonymous with intolerance. Okay. It's a sensitivity. We don't know the mechanism with right. either of them.
1: Okay. That's helpful. Thank you. To, to swing back to our case here, we have this patient that comes in, she thinks she might have a gluten uh, sensitivity or celiac disease. And can you tell us what questions would you ask in the history? What or what do you focus on when you're taking a history from a patient who might have a food allergy or food intolerance? So uh,
3: first of all, I get the spectrum of the symptoms. Sometimes it's um, some of it may be behavior, mm-hmm. brain fog, things like that. People have other symptoms that are not gastrointestinal. So I have to have one comment that's very important. Although I did some training in allergy, and I'm a gastroenterologist that's very interested in the diseases that are in the scope of a Mm -hmm. gastroenterologist. However, if you get into people who have asthma, anaphylaxis, you are not, as a gastroenterologist, the person that should be. They mm-hmm. have to be referred to a board-certified ABIM allergist right, or okay. pediatric allergist Sure. just to make sure that you're dealing with the right disease and the right treatment, mm-hmm. the right doctor.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So back to this pa- patient, I would take a sort of intake of all the s- symptoms. I have a template in my EPIC about all the symptoms that can occur with patients with celiac disease focuses mainly on GI symptoms, but sometimes it can be skin rashes. It can be neurological, rheumatological, because this is a more than just a GI disorder.
1: Mm-hmm. Can so you, through, can you ask some of the, spe- give us some of the specifics of on, on your template, uh, so, just off the top of the head?
3: And so I'll ask about bloating. Mm-hmm. What's happening with their bowels? Is it, predominantly diarrhea, constipation, alternating, Mm -hmm. um, nausea, dyspepsia, abdominal pain, cramping, get an idea Mm of where it locates in their symptoms and are the foods or what time of day things bother them and what symptoms they have. Mm -hmm. I often will act about nocturnal symptoms too because that tends to take away from functional GI disorders if they're getting up in the middle of the night to have a bowel movement, things like that. So that's sort of like a red flag I, that gets yeah, you... right, and oh, I, I have red flags. People who are having rectal bleeding, that's not celiac disease. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily, it would have to be with something
1: else. And do you have a cutoff for weight loss the, as far as that goes, is it?
3: Yes, and anybody who reports unintentional and they've gone down 10% and wait you start okay. to look why that's going on it's not normal
1: okay so this case we gave you this was sort of like just it could you know. be
3: could be IBS it could be someone who's just gone on a low calorie diet you have to ask people what have you been eating and right. if people have given up food because they have a lot of symptomatology it may not be a bad uh uh, bad thing in the long run, I mean, you're not thinking it's cancer, but it may be just they're having a lot of food intolerances, and they've decrease the scope of what they can eat and the amount they eat.
2: Okay. A lot of times we ask questions on the show to ameliorate guilt, or because we've screwed up in some way, and <laughs> the one patient I have that has a diagnosis of celiac disease it was almost entirely um, the extraintestinal manifestations. Are there any of those that sort of point you or make you think this might be celiac above and, because uh, it seems like there's a list. There's a lot of things.
3: Dermatitis herpetiformis is a very, um, specific rash that's very associated with celiac disease. And some of them have, uh, quite a few of them don't have many GI symptoms. And what you have to know is that they're typically things on the extensor part. And it's usually over the elbow and the back of your head, your buttocks, and over your knees. But this is very characteristic here, mm-hmm. very, very itchy. It's one of the things that are most itchy. Huh. And the trouble is then that they cause a lot of excoriation, and by the time they see a dermatologist and they get a biopsy, it's kind of hard to develop. Mm-hmm. So I tell the patients, and if they have a good uh, dermatologist, what they'll do is to tell them is when you get these blebs, go in right then mm-hmm. and get the biopsy. And then they'll have something to work with. It's pathomonomic.
1: Mm-hmm. I
3: won't get into the details of that, but it is very helpful. But that's, and they, if you do an endoscopy and biopsies, you will find that they have an enteropathy.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And they are also at risk, even if they don't have a lot of GI symptoms, if you don't treat it with gluten-free diet, this will cause continual lesions over the el- elbows or head, whatever it is. So you want to put them on a gluten-free diet. And, in fact, the patients with celiac disease who have DH, they're the ones that are most um, compliant because the minute it pops out, it's very itchy, and they know exactly. They have a much better understanding. Interesting. Because there are a lot of patients with celiac disease don't have a lot of symptoms and they can keep yeah. eating low levels of gluten, which isn't necessarily it's good of like for them. Sort like a warning system. Their body's like, hey, yes, <laughs> yeah. you're supposed to do that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you you and, know better. <laughs> and then the other group, to answer your question, people who have um, gluten ataxia and some other neurological pre- um, presentations without a lot of GI
1: symptoms as well. And gluten ataxia—that's a rare thing that we it were is. looking up. Where yes. I guess they eat gluten and become ataxic. If it's <laughs> unless it's a big misnomer.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's not an immediate thing. It's okay. over time they have ataxic uh, features of their. I need to expand my
1: differential for ataxia. I'm usually Hmm. like, well, lower your blood pressure medications or something. You have a neurology consult deficiency? (laughs) Yes, yeah. I think that's what I would do too.
3: (laughs) Yes, when you're looking at, I've mentioned the allergist, but when it comes to celiac disease, if they have... DH, you should see a dermatologist, and if you have ataxia, you should go to see a neurologist. There you go. (laughs) But you should be aware. For those of you who are going to go on your ABIM, GI, you you have to know all these manifestations. What what percentage
0: of celiac disease patients have extraintestinal manifestations?
3: Oh, a high number, yes. It depends how much you include... There's an association of other things Mm -hmm. like Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And so if you look at the overlaps, there's a fair number. And there are many presentations, depending how you look at it, arthritis, neurological skin, nutritional deficiencies becomes a secondary presentation as well. So it's pretty high when you look at it. This is... I wrote um, in the clinic for the Annals of Internal Medicine quite a while now, and I think they asked that me to, to write that because it really is the internist's disease. The gastroenterologists make the diagnosis, mm-hmm. but they don't really follow, follow them mm-hmm. necessarily. I do in my practice, but most of them get set off into the winds, and they hope that those patients do well.
1: I want to ask for this patient that we have, she's come to us with these symptoms, which was mostly bloating. She doesn't, she didn't really tell us about nocturnal symptoms. Um, and then she's, her weight loss, we said was less than 5%. So not, not a huge amount. What, what would you do to work her up and figure out like, is this really celiac? Is it some sort of food intolerance or is it a functional GI disorder? Maybe some combination?
3: That's a great question. If you look at the symptoms of celiac disease and the features of IBS, mm-hmm. they overlap mm-hmm. completely. Mm-hmm. So things, the other things, lactose intolerance could actually present this way. It could be post-infectious, it could be giardia, it could be other intolerances as well, fructus, but that's probably... You have to go through the diet. How much stuff is she taking in with corn syrup and all the drinks with fructose? Mm -hmm. And maybe that's driving her frequent diarrhea. So what I would do in that setting, I would get a CBC, Mm -hmm. a a CMP. I would take a better history than maybe she's just presented get into seeing what kind of diet she has, what triggers her symptoms. Is it stress? Is it food? Um, what has she tried already? How long has she been on a gluten-free diet? Many of our patients come in. And the thing for primary care f- providers, what I like to tell them is, the time they come in and they say, oh, I've been on a gluten-free for the last three months, they still have a wide window to be able to be tested by the serology and by certainly by pathology. Lots of people on a strict gluten-free diet, the pathology may be abnormal for one to three years. Okay. So, so a lot of people say, oh, I can't test you because you're eating gluten. So, you definitely should look at taking a TTG when you see them. Okay. Don't is, think uh, about it for six months, but do it when you f- first see this patient.
1: A tissue transglutaminase. Yes. Is it the IgA specifically that you send? Yes. Okay.
3: Yes. Some people will send a total IgA level. I don't do that. Most of these patients aren't IgA uh, insufficient. So depending on what, um, assay you're using, if it goes up to 19 as normal and you see a very, very low of TTG IgA, then I'll ask for the IgA to see that it's whether it's actually, um, deficient or not. Okay. So some people have it in their hospital just to to go together, but Mm -hmm. I don't do that. I generally just get a regular TTG, IgA. Most uh, places don't have the IgG version of TTG out front because they don't want to order that because it's very uh, insensitive for people who have normal IgA levels. Mm -hmm. It's really only useful once you know that somebody is deficient in IgA. Then you would test the DGP and the TTG IgG at that time because then you could see that allows you to follow that patient without doing endoscopies and biopsies. If you have at least one serology, you could follow that after they Mm. embark on their gluten-free diet.
1: What was the DGP that you, you mentioned? It's a deaminated
3: glute, uh, gliadin peptide. Okay. And this was discovered in Italy, uh, some time ago. We used to have an antibody called anti-gliadin antibody. Mm -hmm. And the NIH had a consensus, um, meeting on celiac disease and they published it in, uh, gastroenterology in 2004. And the typical antigliodin was very insensitive and nonspecific. Uh-huh. It was used for children for a few years later, but over time TTG, the t- tissue transglutaminase is really our main workhorse for celiac yeah. disease.
1: Where do you go from there? Let's let's say that hers hers comes back negative and So how would you start to figure out, is this a functional GI or some sort of a food intolerance? And how would you maybe counsel her? Like, what sort of things would you have her do?
3: Many patients can tell
1: whether or not they have lactose
3: intolerance. Mm -hmm. If they don't, I tell them, go back and have skim milk, which has lots of lactose, but it doesn't have a lot of fat because some Mm -hmm. people have reactions, which is, again, an intolerance to triacylglycerol, which is the fat. Dairy fat. Okay. So patients who tell me that whenever they get problems, it's not skim milk. It's ice cream or it's a pizza or something like that. So then you can actually do your own home. Take a eight ounce or 12 ounce if, and you can chug down skim milk and you don't have diarrhea. It's unlikely to be lactose intolerance. Usually most people, it's within an hour people who have true, um, lactose intolerance, they'll be, they have ice cream at a dinner. They'll be out to the bathroom. Okay. Very quickly. So, so she would be able to be diagnosed by history, but if you didn't, there's a breath test. There's a fructose breath test as well. And again, I would tell them, do you have a lot of, uh, foods that have
1: fructose in them? So the bre- the fructose breath test is to diagnose which condition?
3: For fructose intolerance. Oh, fructose mm-hmm. if you, intolerance. Yeah, you can okay. do that as well.
1: Okay. So. Is that pretty widely available? I've never No,
3: the breath tests are usually in, in larger practices, whether it's in hospitals or even people who are solo gastroenterologists probably wouldn't invest in that. Okay. Yeah.
1: So we're we're giving her some things to try. Yes, let's try to cut the cut yeah. back on lactose first and see if if that right. cures her symptoms. Yeah, usually do simple
3: things. You should be able to narrow things down by taking the history. Okay, what are the things that bother her? Yeah, um, and she certainly could have IBS right. diarrhea predominant. Yeah, and you have to take all the symptoms mm-hmm. and co be concomitant with what, the Rome system, look at those and make sure that it fits into the proper function. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. IBS, whether it's mixed or D or C. Um, or is it not IBS? Is it another functional GI disease? Mm-hmm. Some of it could be defecation problems um, sometimes, but she's young, this person.
2: So it seems like right now... And please correct me if I'm wrong, we're sort of in the land of celiac or IBS or something functional. Would now be maybe an okay time to comment on this sort of non-celiac gluten sensitivity concept uh, yes. and sort of where that, absolutely.
3: That this is a big deal right now because we have lots of people that think they have celiac disease. They don't know whether they have celiac disease or is it a non-celiac uh disorder? So Typically, we try to rule out wheat allergy, which is a completely different thing. It shouldn't be in the differential of the non-celiac gluten sensitivity or celiac disease. Wheat allergy is typically in a young child. Most of the children grow out of it around 14 years of age. There are some adults that will have rare weed allergy, and the allergy is typical like peanut and other types of, or cow's milk allergy, can have GI symptoms, especially when you're a child. You can have asthma, you can have hives, those kind of symptoms. They don't really overlap with the celiac and the non-celiac. Non-celiac patients will often have the GI symptoms. They may have neurological and psychological symptoms. So there is more overlap there versus the wheat allergy. Mm -hmm. So, And wheat allergy compared to celiac disease are completely different immune basis. So wheat allergy is the same as milk and stings. They're from IgE. And mast cells and basophils are a special type of immune cell that will release their histamine and cause some of the uh, hives, cause the asthma, and it's short-lived, but it can be very serious. People can die from from shrimp, crabs, things like that. Mm -hmm. Shellfish can be a problem. The peanuts and the tree nuts, those are the major causes of death in the United States. So again, this would be a patient. If she came and told me how she, if she had hives and asthma, I'd send her to an allergist. Okay.
1: And celiac being a non-IgE-mediated food allergy, you know, they, they don't have those kind of features typically. Right. And, yes. And you mentioned with the non-celiac gluten sensitivity that there were some manifestations. And this is from one of your papers. This is from... Um, it was gastroenterology in 2013 you you had listed some of the symptoms here i'll just read them for the audience diarrhea abdominal discomfort pain bloating flatulence and some of the extra gi manifestations could be headache lethargy oral ulcers or adhd mm-hmm. which i was i had no idea that that would be associated with celiac or Non-celiac gluten sensitivity. But
3: remember, there's overlaps. Mm -hmm. It's the same with H. Pylori, which is another area of my interest. Mm -hmm. When you have a frequent disease, you're going to overlap with just, and that's the trouble with celiac disease. Whether they're true associations, yeah. And we don't because uh, non-celiac, non-gluten celiac uh, symptoms. We really don't know what we're doing. So we don't have a marker. There's no biomarker mm-hmm. for this disease. There are many studies in Europe that were published, but it, you re, like, read the studies and you don't know the in, uh, the cohort that they're studying. They could be totally different. There's some from Italy. There's some from Spain and they find different biomarkers, but they don't stand up in all uh, groups across uh. the world. So we don't have a marker right now. So the closest we've come to now is understanding that it's not the gluten portion of it. There was a study published in gastroenterology, our journal in January. And what they did, it was in Norway, a group of patients that had IBS, Mm -hmm. and they gave them a randomized trial. They had three types of bars. One of them was a gluten bar. One was a regular local bar. And the third one was a fructan bar. Mm -hmm. And they showed in the study, randomized trial, that the patients who had the worst symptoms were from the fructan bar. And right. that's the, the fructan is a major thing of the starch in the wheat, mm-hmm. and so it suggests that our patients that are in, don't have markers for celiac disease, don't have the genes to have celiac disease, then we're really pushing on them now that this is probably the fructan. And that's they're yeah. they're feeling better from that, but it's a different disease,
1: right? So by avoiding the gluten, they're also avoiding fruct- Tense, fructans exactly. And yes. then, so so it was almost like a misnomer that they called it non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So it's more right. like a a celiac gluten sensitivity. <laughs> <laughs>
3: yeah. Yes. So it's well, non-gluten. It's true. It's not gluten. It <laughs> is. It accurate. is the
1: the fodmaps the fructans. Yeah. yeah. So, and to, to, sorry, to differentiate so like these two diagnostically, if this if a person with non-celiac gluten sensitivity were to be biopsied, they wouldn't have like blunting of the right. villi, yes, and they probably wouldn't have positive TTG, yes, okay.
3: And if you go through to the next level, people who are very they want to have celiac disease, they yeah. don't want that sort of. Functional. less yes the functional but it's a fruit trend driving it yeah. now so but before that we were thinking this is just ibs uh-huh. and people don't uh, some people embrace the low fodmap diet yeah. but some people find it a pain um for good reasons so uh, but i think the other thing i mentioned it's not for everybody that you would t- order this test. But the genetic test is just a very small, and it's not that, um, you're only looking at a few alleles and mm-hmm. genes. It's not doing, lots of people are worried when we start doing genetic testing that right. big brother will say, oh, you're, you're destined to get all these diseases. But in this case, it's helpful in two settings, three settings, I guess it should be, children, of a celiac disease parent to see whether they have the gene's possibility. Mm-hmm. The second is in refractory celiac disease and similar enteropathies. When we find that they don't have the genetic makeup to have celiac disease, then we have to be going in a different direction. Yeah. In the days when olmesartan, which is a antihypertensin, we didn't know that it was going to cause this disorder. It's very rare, but in those patients, if initially we would think this was refractory celiac disease before we realized it was due to these drugs. So the genetic testing would be negative in those settings, and we're like, okay, what are we dealing with?
1: I, I'm not familiar. Yeah, um, I'm, can you tell us uh, just briefly um, about the Olmosardin thing? It's um
3: relatively very rare. Okay. Uh, back in... UVA before I moved to San Diego, I had about, I would say, say 10 patients that had refractory celiac disease and they didn't have the genes to have. Right. And then we realized that's quite a number of them were on. Uh, Arden, one of my fellows said, what's it with Benicar? And by the same time, um Joe Murray up at Mayo Clinic in, Ma- in Rochester, he was looking at the same thing as well. And Peter Green and- at Columbia University. And so we saw that a lot of our patients that were very ill wow. actually had Olmosartan and i since i moved to san diego i've had three women um and two of them came to from the midwest and one of them was very very ill wanted to be hospitalized and i said well it's over thanksgiving you know and i go through and i see that drug and i and the minute you take them off they go back to normal
1: wow so, so like they were very days or with, well you know, they start the it's very yeah
3: it, and I usually reboots them and it goes back to normal, and they're very grateful when you figure that oh, yeah. out. Yeah, I'm
1: sure it changes so, their whole
3: life. Yes, yeah. There, unfortunately, for the company, there is a class action going on. I'm not in that, but one sure. of my patients was upset because she wondered why her gastroenterologist didn't know that it was a problem, mm-hmm. and I said, "Well, this is." They should. This is when you come to meetings like this to you learn yeah. things for gastroenterologists, not here necessarily. I, I want our listeners
1: right. to develop. Please, if any of our listeners have a patient uh, that fits this category, please send us an email so we can let uh, Sheila know that she cured your patient. I t- <laughs> from <laughs> yeah. this yeah. interview. <laughs> and it yeah. looks like that's not the only drug that
0: causes drug-induced enteropathy. What's there's here?
3: some there's some of the uh, immunosuppressives right. that's for a, that's transplants. A, absolutely, the so other that, thing, and I've just, seen a number of those too, yeah. but I've seen way more of ulmusartan. Yeah.
0: I, it, it lists out azathioprine, mycophenolate, methotrexate, mycophenolate, neomycin, and colchicine.
1: Yeah. There are. So some colchicine
0: are. may be more applicable to the primary care audience. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes.
1: So. Well, I think maybe we can start to take stock of, uh, whether we've hit all the, all the salient points here and, and start to let you go. I've mentioned already if
3: you think it's an allergic disorder, Send it to the allergist. If it's a GI, you can see, send it to the gastroenterologist. And the other thing when we come to, for all of these diseases that I'm talking about, a dietitian. And a registered dietitian, not just anybody who puts out their little sign, um, is very, very important. The saddest thing in the United States, unlike other parts of the world, you have to pay out of pocket to see a di- dietitian. Mm-hmm. So you want to get the best, and usually they're through university settings. Some of the celiac societies have... Um, availability to work with their um, registered dietitian, they'll charge it um, to the patient, but you want to get the best person for that, for counseling them, especially the low FODMAP diet is very difficult. That's the, absolutely. And I think over time, Gluten is becoming more uh, understandable. It's mm-hmm. labeled. It and up until the late 2000s, the U.S. there was no labeling of our major eight. So the thing now is that we have gluten labeling and wheat. They don't always overlap,
1: but F- fortunately. I think companies make more money if they put gluten free on a product. So yes, they're, so they're incentivized to do so.
3: Yes, well, naturally, gluten free food. In Whole Food, one yeah. time, <laughs> I got this uh, Mary's chicken or turkey, and it was it was range range fed. Missed out then. Finally, it says no gl- no gluten. The other thing for your patients is they're always worried if the cow or the turkey have eaten gluten. Is that a problem? No, it's not. Okay. okay.
0: What about penicillin? If they're allergic to penicillin, <laughs> so if they if they give penicillin to the cows or the chickens and the patient eats the the meat, if no,
3: that it no, it would be with that. I'm not sure that that's ever happened. It could perhaps if it was. I don't know. I'm not sure I would want to eat a cow quality. that you depend
2: on someone in the first place. I feel like that's a dicey proposition. So, hopefully, not applicable. <laughs> maybe not eat but inject it i'm sorry uh,
1: I, I would say for the fodmap diet stanford has a nice handout yes, where it splits yes. it into two columns L- yes. left column is low fodmap right column is high yes. fodmap and it in by food group as well so patient you can tell patients you know you can still eat a balanced diet all the food groups just right. try to pick from the left and it's column. not
3: the thing i always tell my patients it's not forever right. what you're doing is you're changing the thought is that we're changing the microbiome
1: mm-hmm.
3: by starving out all the starches and sugars. And gradually you start to reenter foods and figure out mm-hmm. which are your personal triggers.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And that's where one, one of my patients, the one I'm talking about later today. She came thinking that she had celiac disease and then she thought she had allergies to peppers, um, like bell peppers and onions. And they were clearly an, not allergy. It was on the basis of the same of, uh, as a non-celiac thing. I see. It's the sugars and starches and yeah. they're a big problem. They cause a lot of gas for people. And so she went low FODMAP. And she lost weight and she had six visits with the, uh, with the dietitian, and she still keeps to this diet and mm-hmm. she's very healthy
1: and she was very grateful. Did she go through the aspect where she reintroduced some yes. foods that yes. didn't cause problems? Exactly. Because I've read that the low FODMAP diet, it does alter your microbiome and maybe it's not, it's not a good thing to do for the rest of your life, but mm-hmm. you use it to sort of figure out what, what? your triggers exactly. are, right? Yeah, exactly.
3: Yes. I- uh, I was asked at the American College of Gastroenterology to address a small twenty-minute things about the downsides of being on a low-fat map. We don't know because we don't have that data right now, mm-hmm. and so I think the best thing is to, once you feel well, add new things and make sure you have a diverse diet. Okay. So,
2: don't think that we put a bow on. The idea of testing for allergies, there are some, I think the word oh. voodoo came up and I, I want to uh, give you a chance oh, to yeah. sort of finish yes. that point before we get to take home points. So
3: yeah. a, a lot of our patients come into our offices. I'm sure it happens all over, but especially in Southern California. They come in with ratchets of paper that showed what their test was positive. There are many, um, I don't know if I, well, the NIH panel from the NIAD published it in 2010. So I should be able to say the things that are not what they, they put an asterisk on a bunch of things. So there's one is called MERT, uh, LEAP. The other ones are the IgG. The IgG was not just in North America, was in Europe because children in particularly were getting overly tested with this overly sensitive assay, so the Igg is not doesn 't cause anaphylaxis in most situations, and all these people would get tons and tons of positive things and, and as for children it 's very difficult for their parents and if you carry it to the end of every positivity, these kids were getting malnutrition oh, so geez. so so now the NIH says don't use them, but they're still available all over the this place. Was MERT. Uh, no, and this leaf, isn't. Or? No, this is just called an IgG. Oh, just the IgG. T- IgG, uh, okay. testing for food allergy. Uh-huh. But there's things that are testing the strength through electromyography, and that's not based on any science at all. There's one called a cytotoxicity study, um, and it's LCAT, and they have the petri dishes, and they put white cells from the patient and put these foods in, and if they lice it. It's positive. And the patient gets an output from it and shows all the red foods. Then there were green, the good ones. And oh, yeah. then in the middle is the yellow. So way back, I think it was my first year, a woman came in. She said, this isn't working. And so I look at it, read it. I'd already was aware of it when I was in Virginia. And I said, that's because it's based on nothing um, of science that or of biology. So... I went through her things, and I think she had just uh, functional GI symptoms. So, there's a number of these tests. Or there's tons of them. There are now some of them. They find um, antibodies to all kinds of proteins in the tight junctions of the small bowel. And some of my patients come and saying, "Oh, I must have celiac disease." And I said, "Well, this is not sanctioned. It's not been sanctioned. This." all these tests for permeability like that. So there's many things that on the market that Medicare, I believe, is considering not reimbursing some of these okay. tests. If NIH doesn't say it's a good test, Right, it makes sense, but it may change. But we see patients
1: with all kinds of things from many different products and groups. So we've sort of talked about the the test that you would recommend in the workup and and at some point in that algorithm that we're going to be referring a patient to a gastroenterologist who can sort of decide if there's any specialized testing that needs to be sent
3: right right so and the I we can order panels the Ig panels and I do that um, and the, or if they've seen a an allergist that they'll probably order some pal um, right. or the pricks, pricks Skin yeah, yeah, and that's good as well. So, but there are,
1: there's lots of voodoo testing going on for allergy. Okay. <laughs> yes. Skin pricking. Right. Yeah. Well, this is, I mean, this has been great. I, I feel a lot clearer on all this now. The fact that there is a non-celiac gluten sensitivity that is probably a fructan sensitivity. <laughs> and, uh, and then sort of what, what basic testing to do for, um, for these, for these conditions and, and sort of how to counsel patients. So I think this is going to be really helpful to our audience. Yeah. Well, you, you, you t- so. you're talking about uh,
0: counseling patients that potentially have a fructan sensitivity, but I don't think we talked about briefly what foods are high in fructans. I think that's
1: also important. Well, the, the FODMAP diet would kind of, I right. think right. that right. handout yes. could... Yeah. yeah,
3: fructose is is the... In the acronym, it's fructose. Fructans is the F, F of FODMAP. Mm-hmm. So um, there are... Lots of starches and sugars that have uh, composed with the
1: uh, fructans. Yeah. If you look at the low FODMAP diet, it essentially is like a low fu- low sugar, low gluten. And am I missing anything else? It's lactose. Low lactose. Lactose right.
3: is a big one. It, mm-hmm. Those are the key things. Right. But if you can figure out lactose by itself is the yeah. problem, then that becomes a much narrower mm-hmm. diet thing.
1: And there's there's other elimination diets I know that are out yes, there, yes. And that we're essentially, um, and and maybe it sounds like what we talked about with FODMAP. Is that what you recommend with elimination diets? I find like people that like want to eliminate something for the rest of their life and never revisit eating that. Yeah. Is that something that no. you counsel patients against?
3: Y- y- yes. I would say that because the low-fat diet is very restrictive yeah. if you take it to its end point. Mm-hmm. The most difficult one is the paleolithic or caveman diet, mm-hmm. which is the ultimate low-fat diet and it's hard for people to stay on that. Yeah. And they lose a lot of weight. Most people are using this now for losing weight. Yeah. For a month do a month or two and then you do it because it's not very social. You could never have a glass of wine, cheese, and crackers because none of those foods. Right. But they're not really good for the low FODMAP either. So, um, but you can eventually bring things back.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, how about, how about some take home points for the audience? Uh, big things that you want them to remember.
3: All right. The difference between allergy versus an intolerance. When do you send to the allergist? When they have hives, wheezing, anaphylaxis. Family history is important. I didn't talk about that. Whether it's autoimmune history or an allergic um, mm-hmm. EOE, we didn't talk about mm-hmm. today. Um, the other thing is make sure you have a good registered dietitian to work with for your patients because there are other uh, dietitians that are not uh, been trained properly and so you don't want to send them to that because most of those individuals I found out one she was well trained she came from uh, the east coast but then my patients are telling me that she's selling them products now and that's another no-no that, that's a red flag right, yeah. yes yeah so <laughs> So make sure you've just got the team as well that you're working with to help the,
1: your patients. Excellent. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. This is this is really awesome. This is tremendous. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders. That's right. Bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. You can get our show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food, where you will get a weekly copy of our show notes. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and to do that, we want your input, so please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes. You can send an email to thecurbsiders at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter at The Curbsiders. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto.
0: And I'm Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, and good night.
2: And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, and good night.
0: Oh, hi, Paul. You have been with us for a while.
1: <laughs> and thank you to sarah phoebe roberts who helped write and produce the show as well as christopher chu uh chu man on <laughs>
0: at cj chu <laughs>
1: who served as a in-studio producer and uh has been helping out a lot with our our new video uh endeavor also, to all of our correspondents who helped produce the show and show notes behind the scenes, our social media team, Hannah Abrams is on Twitter, Beth Garbatelli is on Instagram, and Chris Chu, Chu Man, is on Facebook. <laughs> Chris Chu Man, Chu, is on Facebook. I love it. <laughs>